So, you may or may not have noticed, but we are in an election year. Donald Trump is running on a platform of moving American politics even further to the right, which seems to have been the natural course of things since at least the 1940s. Joe Biden, on the other hand, with such insipidly awful slogans as No Malarkey, This is America, and Keep America Great, which, by the way, is not a great slogan to use when running against an incumbent. Joe Biden is, much like Warren Harding in the election of 1920, promising a return to normalcy. Now, in Harding's case, he wanted to return to the innocent days of a pre-World War I America, an impossible act given the profound impact that the war had on American life. Biden, on the other hand, wants a return to the rose-colored days of the Obama administration. Now, Joe Biden will not be the focus of this episode. I have already talked about him ad nauseum, but suffice it to say that that too is an impossible promise. We live in a drastically different world than we did in 2008 or 2012. Outside of an electoral context, the stakes have risen significantly. We are staring down the barrel of a climate apocalypse within the decade and the consistently rising tide of white supremacist terrorism. The decay of our social services permitted and encouraged for decades under Republicans and Democrats alike is reaching critical mass. We're faced with these problems so terrifyingly immediate and large in scope that the CDC has announced that in the past 30 days, one in four young Americans has seriously contemplated suicide. Considering the changes this country has gone through over the past four years, it is functionally impossible to turn back the clock. Going back to the Obama era doesn't cut it anymore. The question then becomes, was Obamaism ever enough? If you've listened to any considerable amount of this show, or if you've read my book, then you'll know that I love saying this. But politics does not exist in a vacuum. There is a reason why we have a President Trump, and there is a reason why he came directly after Obama. In 2016, people felt compelled to vote for Donald Trump as an outsider who would, quote, drain the swamp due to the failures, broken promises, and policy choices of the Obama administration. Donald Trump ran a campaign that repudiated every one of Obama's policies, but that is not the reality of the Trump administration. A good portion of Donald Trump's most ghoulish policies are continuations of policies that began under Obama. In some cases, they are continuations of Bush-era policies that Obama ran a campaign against, but in practice maintained as usual. This week, I'm going to be talking about the awful legacy of Barack Obama and why he is a villain you should not celebrate. You're listening to Hidden History, and this is episode 83, Let Go of Obama. 
Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like what I do, then subscribe, leave a rating, or click the link in the description which leads to Hidden History's freshly created Patreon page. And now, on to the show. In 2004, a year after America invaded Iraq, John Kerry, then a senator from Massachusetts, challenged the incumbent George Bush for a shot at the White House. Kerry, of course, as we all know, lost, and doing a post-mortem on that election is complicated. There are a lot of reasons why he lost. One of his campaign slogans was, Let America be America again, essentially promising Americans another return to normalcy, a return to the safe days of pre-9-11 America. But at that time, George Bush was a relatively popular president. His first term average approval rating was 63%, and the average American had not yet been exposed to the horrors we were committing in Iraq. One of the other reasons that John Kerry lost was that he didn't position himself as an effective opposition to George Bush. He didn't oppose Bush's policies based on the fact that they were morally wrong. He opposed them based on Bush's execution. John Kerry didn't want to end the Iraq war. He simply promised the American people that he could execute the Iraq war more competently. Because Kerry provided no meaningful critique or opposition to Bush policies outside of I could do it better, it allowed the ball to remain perpetually in George Bush's court, and allowed him to control the framing of each policy issue. John Kerry did not run as the antithesis of George Bush. He ran as George Bush light. As a result, the American people decided to stick with the devil they knew, and John Kerry lost. Because of the lack of substantive policy differences between the two candidates, John Kerry's campaign essentially ran on the foundational platform of not being George Bush, but of being a more competent and compassionate executor of Bush policies. Now, when talking about the election of 2004, I find a lot of parallels in the election of 2020. Joe Biden is also promising us a return to a better and more comforting past, and he is also refusing to offer substantial policy opposition to Donald Trump. Sure, there are relatively small differences, but it would be impossible for Biden to run a campaign that is diametrically opposed to all Trump policy while also heralding a return to Obamaism. At the most generous, Biden is running on a platform of being a more competent and compassionate executor of Trump policy. Now, that might seem like I'm making a pretty hyperbolic claim. And so to defend that, I suppose I should get to the main subject of this episode, Barack Obama. One of the things that you'll hear about Obama is that he began his career as a community organizer. But in truth, his political career really began in 1997, when he was elected to the Illinois State Senate for the first of three terms. 
When he won the election of 1996, Adolph Reed, who is now a professor of race and politics at the University of Pennsylvania, wrote this about the young politician in The Village Voice. In Chicago, for instance, we've gotten a foretaste of the new breed of foundation-hatched black communitarian voices. One of them, a smooth Harvard lawyer with impeccable do-good credentials and vacuous to repressive neoliberal politics, has won a state senate seat on a base mainly in the liberal foundation and development worlds. His fundamentally bootstrap line was softened by a patina of the rhetoric of authentic community. Talk about meeting in kitchens, small-scale solutions to social problems, and the predictable elevation of process over program. The point where identity politics converges with old-fashioned middle-class reforming in favoring form over substance. So, from the gate... Some that have been following his ascension to the Senate immediately pegged him as someone who favored decorum, flowery language and empty rhetoric as a means to run interference for harmful neoliberal conservative ideas. Of course, Reed is correct here, but let's talk about why. In 2005, Barack Obama wins a Senate seat and slowly raises his profile before deciding to run for president in the 2008 election. Now, we all remember that election. In the middle of what was then the worst financial crash since the Great Depression, here was someone who seemed like a political outsider, who seemed like he was going to shake things up and get a square deal for the average American. I mean, the guy's slogans were literally hope and change. If you were a voter in 2008, wouldn't you have thought that change would involve prosecuting the bankers who committed fraud and knowingly destroyed the economy, making the livelihoods of thousands of Americans simply disappear? That certainly sounds like change to me. And so, wouldn't it seem a little suspect if, theoretically, a man named Michael Froman, who was the head of City Insurance and Emerging Market Strategy at Citigroup, one of the massive financial institutions that knowingly tanked the economy, wouldn't it just be a tiny bit suspicious if he donated $200,000 to Obama's election campaign, and then suddenly his friend, Jacob Liu, the CFO at Citigroup Alternative Investments, landed a spot on the Obama transition team— which he took without resigning from Citigroup. And then, when he theoretically did resign, he theoretically received a $1.1 million bonus a year later. And then let's say that Jacob Liu hired Jamie Rubin, the son of Robert Rubin, the chairman of Citigroup, who was also Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, who passed the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, and allowed Citigroup to be created. And then, theoretically, if Obama's transition team negotiated with the Bush administration to pass the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, which handed out $700 billion to banks like Citigroup at the taxpayer's expense, wouldn't that seem strange? 
Wouldn't you think it would be a little suspect if on October 6th, 2008, Michael Froman sent an email to John Podesta, the head of Obama's transition team, which maybe, theoretically, gently suggested a list of names for cabinet positions, all of whom were eventually chosen. Robert Gates as Secretary of Defense, Eric Holder as Attorney General, Janet Napolitano as Secretary of Homeland Security, Rahm Emanuel as Chief of Staff, Susan Rice as UN Ambassador, Arne Duncan as Secretary of Education, Kathleen Sebelius as Secretary of Health and Human Services, Peter Orzag as the head of the Office of Management and Budget, Eric Shinseki as the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, and Melody Barnes as Chief of the Domestic Policy Council. For Secretary of the Treasury, Citigroup presented three options. Robert Rubin, the president of Citigroup. Or his two protégés, Lawrence Summers and Timothy Geithner. Obama chose Geithner, who had engineered the Citigroup bailout. Theoretically, if those were things that had happened, wouldn't it kind of seem like Citigroup was the real shot caller? But this isn't just a theoretical issue with Citigroup. Why, Goldman Sachs donated almost a million dollars to the Obama campaign, and then, serendipitously, a great number of their employees just happened to stumble into financial oversight jobs in the Obama administration. Having the terms of your administration dictated by the banks who destroyed the economy for fun kind of seems fundamentally at odds with change don't you think? But Obama's misdeeds are not merely limited to some nice corruption in the financial sector. He also committed just an incredibly large amount of war crimes through things such as the massive expansion of the American drone program. Now, I talked about the drone war in last episode, so I'm really not going to talk about it here. But suffice it to say that Obama gave the CIA the green light to start illegal drone bombing campaigns in countries that we were and are not at war with, like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Libya, Yemen, Somalia. White House policy under the Obama administration was to officially deny the existence of all of these illegal wars. Something that I didn't touch on last week, though, was the sheer scale of civilian casualties. The names of those killed in American drone strikes are not released by the American government, and in order to artificially lower the appearance of civilian deaths, the military considered every male of military service age to be an enemy soldier unless there was concrete proof that they were not. And of course, if they won't tell us who they killed, then there's really no way of us to check now, is there? Of course, who could forget his campaign promise to finally close Guantanamo Bay, America's illegal torture prison in Cuba? He, of course, did not do that. He actually continued America's illegal torture program, leading him to one day solemnly bow his head in a press conference and say, we tortured some folks. He wasn't really helping his case when he told aides on the subject of the drone strikes, I'm really good at killing people. But anyway, I suppose now is the time that I can talk about immigration. At the DNC this year, Michelle Obama came on camera and delivered a very emotional address aimed against, among other things, Donald Trump's immigration policies, 
rebuking him for putting kids in cages. What she fails to mention, of course, is that the imprisonment of immigrants and the policy of family separation actually began under her husband. Now, it's worth noting that family separation under the Obama administration was conducted on a case-by-case basis, while under Trump, it is a blanket rule. This, of course, means that Trump's draconian immigration policies are a natural progression of those enacted under Obama, which themselves were a continuation of those that had existed under Bush. The immigrant concentration camps that are rightly the focus of so much anger under the Trump administration were constructed by Obama, and prisoners there were given the same regard that they are today. Under his watch, the government set a quota for daily deportations. There is in fact a reason why one of Obama's nicknames was the Deporter-in-Chief. As he presided over the deportation of some 2.5 million people, Now, Obama's official policy was that his administration only pursued the deportation of criminals. There is, of course, one problem. The Bush administration made undocumented border crossing a crime. So Obama did not target criminals. He targeted everyone. Now let's uh, let's change it up a little bit. Here is a clip of the fantastic Dr. Cornell West on Democracy Now!, speaking about the impact of Obama's presidency in 2012. Well, one, I think that it's morally obscene and spiritually profane to spend $6 billion on an election, $2 billion on a presidential election, and not have any serious discussion, poverty, Trade unions being pushed against the wall, dealing with stagnating and declining wages when profits are still up and the 1% are doing very well. No talk about drones dropping bombs on innocent people. So we end up with such a narrow, truncated political discourse as the major problems, ecological catastrophe, climate change, global warming. So it's very sad. I mean, I'm glad there was not a right-wing takeover. But we end up with a Republican a Rockefeller Republican in blackface with uh, Barack Obama, so that our struggle in regard to poverty intensifies. That's a pretty rough assessment of President Obama. Oh, that's what we have. That's what we have. Richard Nixon is to the left of him on health care. Richard Nixon to the left of him on guaranteed income. And the same policies in terms of imperial foreign policy is at work. And so I was glad to see that Romney didn't win. We pushed back a right-wing takeover. We've got a right-wing mentality. Cut, cut, cut. Austerity, austerity, austerity. Where is the serious talk about investment and jobs, fighting the the privatizing of education, and the empowerment of trade unions? And so our our, our battle is just beginning. We we have yet to take off the gloves. (laughs) We've been fighting intensely. There is, of course, so much more to mention. Obama's handling of the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, the escalation of police violence under his tenure, the time he called protesters in Baltimore thugs, when he told Colin Kaepernick to think of the military families whose feelings he's hurting. The list really kind of goes on. Since Obama left office, one of the most important things to him has been the maintenance of his legacy. He wants to be remembered as a progressive crusader for good, but such a legacy is fundamentally at odds with reality, 
And so, in order to keep the illusion alive, Barack Obama has inserted himself back into American politics. Not as a candidate, but as a power broker. The election of any presidential candidate to the left of Obama would appear to the American people to be admitting that what Obama did was not nearly enough. In order to prevent an invalidation of his legacy, Obama changed the course of the Democratic primary, putting his foot on the scale for his dopey second-in-command. When there is change in the wind, Barack Obama makes it his mission to snuff it out. Just yesterday, he orchestrated the end of the Wildcat NBA strike that had the opportunity to elevate our national consciousness in regard to labor. For the rest of his life, Barack Obama will remain a ghoulish impediment to progress. He attained the highest office in the country by promising a repudiation of Bush policies, and instead chose to intensify and expand them. His actions set precedent and paved the way for Donald Trump, who used the draconian policies of the Obama administration as a blueprint to further oppress the American people. The largest reason that we have a President Trump is because of the actions and failures of President Obama. With that in mind, Biden's promise of a return to Obama's America does not sound soothing, it sounds exceedingly dangerous. It is already incredibly difficult to win a race against an incumbent. But if Joe Biden makes the same mistake as John Kerry, if he simply wishes to be a kinder executor of the same fundamental policies, then his bid might as well be dead in the water. If he wants to ascend into one of the highest offices on earth, then he'll have to give us something better then keep America great.